Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of each heart here this morning be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, just to rehearse, the book of Romans is written to the Christian church in Rome. Rome ruled the world at the time. It was a huge empire, unbelievably influential, very wealthy, very sophisticated. Uh, The presence or lack thereof of computers and smartphones doesn't actually make us smart, doesn't make us sophisticated. And uh, when you look at thought, the life of the mind, when you look at philosophy, when you look at uh, art, when you look at drama, um, poetry, uh, Greece and Rome and, and uh, the Western world today are, are very equivalent, very sophisticated people. So the Apostle Paul is writing the center of that entire empire, and the center was in Rome. So if his letter to Corinth would be the equivalent of a letter to maybe a combination of San Francisco and L.A. in terms of the decadence, just the, just the lack of sort of the classless, garish decadence of San Francisco. Well, Rome is very different from Corinth. Rome is a combination of New York City and Washington, D.C. And so he's writing the church there, and that church was comprised not just of Jews, but also of Gentiles. And we don't know what the proportions were, but there was always a battle in every church in the New Testament times between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the reason is that God did not reveal himself to the Gentiles. God told the Jews to wipe out all the Canaanites because of their wickedness. So if you remember back in chapter 1, when the Apostle Paul's writing to the Roman church, you remember he goes on about what? Well, about the particular sins and wickedness of Gentiles. And that's why he ends with homosexuality and idolatry, because Gentiles reject, refuse to worship the Creator, and so what do they do? Well, they do what, you know, an evolutionary biologist does. It's, it is not he that hath made us, but we have made ourselves, right? This is what all evolution is about, right? We have made ourselves, we have evolved, you know, 
And, and, and there are some smart beings out somewhere in the cosmos that are communicating to us by radio waves, and it's just all evolving, you know? And so um, we look at the sophistication of the ancient world, and as they worshipped the creation rather than the creator who is forever praised in Romans chapter 1, it ends up with them being like uh, so in, so so into themselves that men can't even find it within themselves to love women. But they make love to themselves. And so it just ends up at the end of chapter 1 with this unbelievably horrible narcissism. Because that's what homosexuality is. It's just like, I don't even have it in me to relate to a woman, I'm just going to relate to myself. And, and maybe somebody else says, kind of reminds me of myself, I'm just going to be, I'm going to love myself. Right? And right at the point where the Jews in Rome, in the church, are like, yeah, they're so disgusting, Paul turns at the beginning of chapter 2 and he says, and you! <laughs> and, you know, we're all judging them, and all of a sudden he says, but what about you? Do you commit adultery? And it's like, well, yeah, but adultery is a whole lot better than homosexuality. And the Apostle Paul just wastes us. Just absolutely wastes us. There is none righteous, not one. Every mouth is stopped. Every single mouth. You can feel the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles in Romans 1 and 2. You know, he's whooping up on the Gentiles because of the filth of their narcissism. And right about the time he has us in the palm of his hand and we're all looking down on him, he says, but what about you? And this is the tension there is in every single New Testament church, is you've got the Jews looking down on the Gentiles and the Gentiles, you know, resenting the Jews. Okay? And so when we pick up with chapter 7, we feel the tension because right away he says, or do you not know, brethren? And then this little parenthetical statement, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. Okay? Who are the ones that know the law? Oh, man, the commentaries just wear me out. Because the commentaries go on and on about whether or not the ones who know the law are the Jews or the Gentiles or some mixture of the two. Well, come on. If he's writing Jews and Gentiles and weaving back and forth like chapter 1 and chapter 2, it's obvious that this is an aside to the Jews, right? But it's an aside to the Jews that the Gentiles are not going to feel superior about, right? This is the way language works. People are going to always force you to have one meaning or the other on Facebook because Facebook is so stupid. And they're going to say, well, you had to have meant this. And you're going to like, oh, for heaven's sakes, that's not what I meant. Have you ever, like, actually thought about what words have meanings? You know, they, they, they can, like, have two meanings at one time, you know? Uh, the doesn't mean the, you know. Uh, life doesn't mean life, you know. And doesn't mean and. Mother doesn't mean mother. And so what you see here is the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Jews. He, you know, they're sitting there and, and they're thinking that they're the champions of the law. Right? Because that's how God singled them out. God gave them the law. It was a privilege. 
God told them that if they obey the law, what? They will live. And so we're going along, and he's just in chapter 6, spent all this time talking to the church about how they've died to sin. You remember this in chapter 6. He goes on and on about how you're dead to sin. Why? Why did he go on and on in chapter 6 about how they're dead to sin? The reason he went on and on about them being dead to sin in chapter 6 is that they weren't dead to sin. And he kept saying, you died to sin. Stop sinning. And they just keep sinning. And so he's going around and around and around. Look, you died to sin, so why are you living in sin? I thought you were done with sin. But now you're living in sin. And so the Jews are reading this, and the Jews have been acclimated to keeping the law. And so he's talking about die to sin, live to sin. The Jews are, well, you know, at least some of us here have, have some respect for, for law. We're not like these lawless ones, uncircumcised, filthy Gentiles, you know. And so the Apostle Paul is going to, you know, the old saying, the second verse, same as the first, a little bit louder and a little bit worse. Well, chapter 7 is chapter 6 over again. But now instead of sin being what they've died to, now they've died to the law. And the problem is that when you deal with Jews about dying to the law, you best remember that Jews think that's their reason to exist. When you tell a Jew that he's died to sin and died to the law, when you tell a Jew that the law is abrogated, all right, a Jew is not going to take it well. And so the Apostle Paul is having to go back and say, I know I was scandalous last chapter, but let me make an argument to you that will allow you to come come along with me as I once again try to do the job that I wasn't quite successful in doing in chapter 6. And let me use an analogy. The analogy is marriage. Okay? And through marriage, I'm going to explain to you how it is that you actually have died to the law, that you're no longer under your husband, which is the law, but now you're under Jesus Christ, and he's your new law. But it's a law of liberty. And so he's working his way along. He knows the Jews are scandalized with chapter 6. And so he's going to try to go back and bring them along. And so he says something he hasn't said since chapter 1. And that is, or do you not know? And that with Paul is almost a hackneyed phrase. He uses it so often. Or do you not know? And you're supposed to say, well, of course I know. You know, sometimes I talk to some of you where I'm trying to give you counsel, and your response is, yeah, 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 yeah. If you already know it, I'm an idiot. Oh, no, that's not what my yes means, you know? Well, the Apostle Paul wants us to go, yeah, yeah, of course I know, right? That's the reason he's saying this. He's saying, do you not know, brother? And our response is supposed to be, well, any idiot knows that. Do you not know? Well, yeah, I knew that. And then he says this. He says, brethren. First time since chapter 1. Doesn't say cistern. That's to hold water. Come on, laugh, lower yourself. He says, brethren. Why does he say brethren? Now listen, this would be an exact place where every Bible translator today would try to take that word out and say, you know, siblings or Christian friends. 
But it says brethren. Brethren is a male marked. It has a male semantic content. Okay? It, 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 it's a word that's marked by the distinction between man and woman. Brethren. Okay? Now, when the Apostle Paul writes the Roman church and he says brethren, okay, do you think that he is intending for the women to listen? Now, that's the most stupid question on the face of the earth. He's writing the whole church. Of course what he says, brethren, the women are listening. Are you kidding? How are you going to keep them from doing it? You know? Of course the women are listening. So then the question is, does brethren have any meaning, or would it be good to take the male semantic meaning component out and replace it with cistern, brethren, cistern, sibling, or Christian friends? Well, Christian friends is out because Christian friends doesn't refer to the familial relationship. And the familial relationship is always the basis of Christian unity in the church because God has adopted all of us as sons. And daughters, but more sons than daughters, actually. By that I mean that even women who come to Christ are called sons of God, adopted sons of God. All right? Now... This is only the first time he's used it since Romans chapter 1, and he is saying, brethren, and let me do something for you. Let me do what every preacher in, uh, in the conservative Reformed church in the Western world would do with this text, and that is to say to you, listen, brothers and sisters, or listen, humans, or listen, human beings, or listen, persons, or listen, guys. Guys is almost unisex now, okay? What changes when I say, listen, people, and when I say, listen, brothers? What changes? You know, the Bible says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. So this word is profitable. What changes when I go from listen, people, to listen, brothers? What changes is the men perk up and listen carefully when I say brothers. It's natural. And does that exclude the women? No. But wives, have, have you ever noticed how hard it is to get a man to listen to you? Wives, am I talking to the air? Have you noticed how hard it is to get a man to listen to you? Wives? Yeah. Yeah. So why would you resent the Apostle Paul doing the very thing you try to do all your whole life? (laughs) The Apostle Paul is trying to get the men to listen to him. Why should we be offended at this? This is so childish. It's, It's just like Jesus talking about John the Baptist, you know. You know, he came and he was austere and you know, and, and, and you said he wouldn't dance with you, and I came and danced with you, and you said that I'm a wine-bibber. You know, we're just so impossible to please today. Have you ever noticed that? It's like whatever the Bible says, that's wrong. You know, it's our automatic, it's our reflex action. So he says, or do you not know, brother? And so the Apostle Paul is doing something that you may never have heard of, but it's called wheedling and cajoling. Okay? He's like a boxer. He's dancing, you know? Okay, 
You know the law. Yeah, brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. For I am speaking to those who know the law. You think you know the law. Oh, good, good, good. You know the law. Do, do, do. That the law, and now comes the punch, the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. If you say the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives, you're saying something which you have not said explicitly but is implied. The law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. The law does not have jurisdiction over him after he dies. If it's only as long as he lives, then after he dies, it doesn't have jurisdiction over him. And then the Apostle Paul says, okay, I'm going to try to figure out some way of illustrating this through the law that everybody's going to buy into. And so what does he choose? He chooses the metaphor, he chooses the example of marriage. And he goes directly into it. He says, for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. Okay, now. That's not what the text says in Greek. Here's the problem. The problem is that what the Greek says here is not the married woman. What the Greek actually says is the underman woman. Okay? And so, if you look at the Greek, it's not hard to understand because the word for woman is gunes, which is the same word that we get the word gynecology from. Okay? And so, we know that it ends with the word woman, but in Greek, often that word should be pumped up earlier in the sentence for, our, for us to understand it. And so uh, the word woman is immediately after the modifier of the word woman, which is a word uh, that has the Greek prefix hoop, which means under, connected to uh, the word woman. And so, um, literally, it's hoop andros gune, and so gune is from gynecology, and andros is man, and hooper is under. And so it's under man, woman. That's just a literal translation. There's no argument over it. It's absolutely what the Greek means. So again, what does the Greek say? It says under, it's a prefix, under, then the word man, and then the word woman. So it's an under man, woman. Now, what is the difference between saying married woman and saying under man woman? I mean, first of all, the word married can apply to a man or a woman. Can under apply equally to a husband and wife? No, because the Bible doesn't ever speak of a husband being under his wife. And so do you see how spoiled we are? We're so utterly spoiled that every chance we get, we say, God hath not said. It literally says an under-man woman, and that's a wife. She is under her husband. <laughs> Those of you thinking about marriage, <laughs> think about that. <laughs> you can be under a man. 
See how Carol's sitting right now. Carol is illustrating what the Greek actually says. Because Carol is snuggled under the arm of her husband. Okay? Now, why am I making a big deal out of this? Is it because I want all of you wives to submit to your husbands? Uh, Yeah. But that's not why I'm making a big deal out of this. The entire example hinges on the thought that a wife is under a husband as Christians were under the law, as Christians are now under Christ, who is their husband. Without under, the whole thing is blown up. Please give me a Bible that says what the text says. It doesn't say marry. And when you think it doesn't matter that you get rid of the word under, the prefix under, it matters. Because the analogy, and Calvin is very specific about this, the analogy is not simply about being under the law. It's a, the analogy extends to the wife being under the authority of her husband. We're all perverted sexually, and so we immediately think when she's joined to another man and we think sex. You know, and so she's not an adulteress. But there's more at play there. It says under man. And so it's not just the issue of intimacy, it's also the issue of his command being her command. And it's just assumed in the text of Scripture. What he says is law to her. And then it goes on, and this is the reason why in this church, one of the most unique things about this church is that we just simply give the vows to the bride and groom. We don't let anybody say their own vows. Why not? The reason is, we're all such spoiled children that we come up with all this romantic language about how I'll be your breakfast coffee and I'll be your nightcap and I'll be, I'll be your frilly and lace and I'll be your Merle Haggard and I'll be your, you know, this beepy, 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 beep. And we would like that moment when you plight your troth to be as serious as death and as biblical as the actual text of Scripture. We can't do that. It's not inspired. But it comes from Cranmer, and it's, it's probably actually more like, a, it probably goes back to, 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 to the rites from a thousand years ago. We know it's 500 years old. And here are the marriage vows that are actually required in this church. This is what the wife says to her husband as she takes him. I say, Susan, take you, say David, to be my wedded husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, to love, cherish, and what? And obey. Till death separates us. And so he goes on and he says, while he is living, she's bound, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. And when it says the law concerning her husband, it's not just talking about sexuality. There's a bunch of law when it comes to husband and wife. 
And it starts with she was created for him. And she is to obey him. Okay? Don't struggle against it, women. I was asked recently on Facebook whether, uh, you know, the, the, the perpetual question of the world today is, you know, are you saying that, uh, are you saying that, uh, I mean, it's just always, are you saying that a woman should submit to a man? Are you saying that husbands should submit to wives? Are you saying that, you know, that women should, every woman should submit to every man? And about the only thing that's interesting on Facebook anymore is, is authority, because it's the only, there's nothing that's hated like authority. And it's always God's authority that's hated. Listen, somebody asked me recently whether, you know, I believe that, uh, I'm trying to remember what the actual question was. Um, anyhow, the implication is that this is a private Christian truth, that it doesn't apply and that uh, people who are not Christians, uh, that, that, that you will not see. Oh, I know what I did. I said on Facebook that, um, I said on Facebook that it's, that it's always easier to, to lead women than men. And somebody said, why? And I said, well, because Adam was created first and then Eve. You know, and of course, there's all kinds of pagans reading this, you know. And they're thinking, he just said it's easier to lead men than women. And they can't believe that any dinosaur has crept out of his cave, you know, and, and has actually uttered such a truth today. And so I said it. And then somebody says, well, do you think this is true for women who are unbelievers as well as, as women who are Christians? And I said, well, yeah. And the answer is why? Why would you think it's easier to lead women who are unbelievers than men who are unbelievers. I said, well, because Adam was created first, then Eve. You know, the idea that God, our creator, would create women in such a way that it would conform to the order of creation is just beyond our ability to conceive. You know, that God would give women a temperament, a temperament that makes them easier to lead than men. It's like, you know, knock me over. You know, I can't believe that anybody in this late day and age would believe such a thing, you know. Listen, if you don't like the fact that God has made Adam first and then Eve, you can fight it against it all you want, but it's not going to do any good because as you fight against it, you'll testify to the truth. <laughs> in other words, a woman who's trying to whoop up on a man, whether it's in an action flick or whether it's in a commercial, or whether it's right here in this church Sunday morning afterwards when some little pint of a size woman tries to squeeze the snot out of my hand to show me how strong she is. It's unseemly. Because she remains a woman. And if she tries to dress like a man and get surgery to change into a man, it's even more unseemlier. It's immodest. It's, it's embarrassing. Listen, be at peace with your sex. Don't fight it. Because men love submissive women. You say, oh yeah, every man wants a barefoot and pregnant woman. I say, no. A submissive woman. A submissive woman. Okay? Not a stupid woman. You know? Why is everybody, you know, the minute you say some woman, you know, women should be submissive, then immediately everybody says, well, you're talking about barefoot and pregnant. And it's like the excluded middle 
All right, there are options in between stupid and pregnant and barefoot and uh, Rosie. <laughs> you know, Rosie? Y'all know Rosie? You know, something, you don't know Rosie. All right. Rosie O'Donnell. What? Yeah, Rosie Riveter. Yeah. Or Bill Clinton's wife. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to a mother man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law. So that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. We are certainly talking about sexuality here. And what the Bible tells us here is that when a woman becomes a widow, when her husband dies, she is free from submitting to him and from being exclusively related to him intimately. Now, everybody knows this. There's no question about it. She is free, and he's using this to illustrate our relationship with sin as our husband and then righteousness in Jesus Christ as our husband, all right? Therefore, my brethren, notice again, he's calling men's attention to them. They're falling asleep. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Now, do you remember what we said was the theme of chapter 6? You died to sin. You died to sin. Why aren't you dead to sin? You died to sin. Why aren't you dead to sin? Would you notice that both these chapters, the entire doctrinal teaching, all the truths that are encapsulated here, are for what purpose? They're always for the purpose of doing what is right. It's not just an intellectual exercise. The point is for all of us to see that we have died to sin. We have died to the law. The law was our schoolmaster leading us to Jesus. And the law was unbearable. It was not a comfy chair. It drove us crazy. Because every time we tried to be good, every time we tried to do what was right, we were overwhelmed with the fact that just desiring to do what was right seemed to immediately produce the fruit in us of wanting to do more wrong. That's what the law does. The law is created by God to drive us to despair. We are in a body of death. We're married to the law. It's like a noose. It's choking us to death. And we despair and despair and despair. The animals and their blood are just all over Israel all through the Old Covenant. The people in the wilderness never stop whining and complaining. It's everybody else's fault. It's never their fault. You know, the Israelites even say, you know, 
Why did he take us out of Egypt? At least there we would have had places to be buried. And so the Gospels preach to us that in Christ we have forgiveness of sins. And we say, seriously. And the Gospel preacher says, seriously. He died so that you could die to the law. That you could finally be done with it because he is the one who has paid the price. He kept the law. And you don't have to. That's the gospel. He is our perfect lamb. He was in every way righteous. Every single tiniest way righteous. And then he poured out his blood and there was not a hint of a sin in him for which he had to pour out his blood. It was your blood. His was given for yours. And that's the gospel. (coughs) You remember me telling you about my philosophy professor who goes on and on and on about what an ethical system should be. Whole semester, upper level course, on and on and on. And finally the day comes where he explains that any ethical system, to be ethical, to be right, to be just, to be fair, has to, what? You remember, he says it has to be able to be fulfilled. You have to be able to keep an ethical system for it to be a fair ethical system. If if a rule is created, you have to be able to keep the rule if it's a good rule. You want to make rules that people can't keep. And he's going on and on about it. He wrote in the Socratic method, started in three boards, comes beforehand, fills all three boards up with questions. And you work your way through it. So he comes to this. And he, any ethical system, and he was, he was a wonderful man, any ethical system, in order to be fair and good, you have to be able to fulfill it. And I'm sitting there, and I'm a Christian. And I'd done come to Christ because I knew I could not keep the law of God. I couldn't keep the big laws. I couldn't keep the little laws. And I couldn't keep even the tiny laws. And even my motivation in trying to keep them was always evil. And my mother, she done be always pointing this out to me. (laughs) You know, she was a good mother. And so I'm sitting there listening to him. He's got all these philosophy majors in this class and grad students even, you know. And, and here's, here's loudmouth Tim Bailey. And I raise my hand. No, Dr. Moline. No, you're so close to the kingdom of God, but you got it wrong. The whole point is God set up the law so that we would despair of keeping the law. And, you know, he acts like I'm a specimen in a, in a Petri disc. You know, a dish. You know, he's like, yeah, yes, yes, well, well, yes, Tim, I, and I'm so, no, 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 seriously, listen to me. I'm trying to explain this to you. The whole point of the law is that we can't keep it. And he's like, well, yes, I, uh, well, we, uh, and all the, everybody else there is an embarrassed silence, you know. Well, Tim tries to preach the gospel to 
the chairman of the philosophy department. <laughs> well, I, didn't, I wasn't successful by the end of the class, so, so then I took my books and I walked with him back to his office trying to explain it to him. And finally, he says to me, Tim, I understand what you're saying, but I'm sorry, I just cannot accept that. And what is a Christian? A Christian is the man and woman that is willing for God to use the law. to drive him to his knees and say, uncle. And he does not think that God is unfair. He does not think that God is a harsh taskmaster. He declares God driving him to his knees under the law as being just and right and loving. Because all of a sudden he sees that he is not the point. That God is the point. And that it is our calling to worship him and give him glory. And that every minutest point at which we don't give God glory deserves eternal wrath from God. God is God, and we are not. You remember the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to all those who believe. You have no idea how often preachers of the gospel are ashamed of the gospel. I was meditating this morning about how hipster, rich, uh, city slicker Presbyterians today would write Rome as opposed to the way the Apostle Paul wrote it. You imagine all the nuanced and all the excusing and all the, the equivocations and all the flattery that would come out of the pen of Reformed men today writing to the church in Rome. <laughs> How many times when I complain about the failure of Reformed pastors today to be faithful to the text of Scripture, I always get the same thing from people. Well, he's had more converts than you'll ever have in your ridiculous, puny little life out there in the Midwest. And if you were in New York City, then you would understand why he has to to massage the truth in such a way that, that New York, you know, or Bain cause, you know, sophisticated people that work with their mouths. (laughs) you know, how those people need to be talked to if they're going to come to Jesus, you know. Not stupid people like Paul. Amen. This is ridiculous. The Apostle Paul had more learning than all of IU put together. The Apostle Paul was as urbane and sophisticated as anybody on the face of the universe has been. Now, that's an exaggeration. Gamaliel is his rabbi. You know? Come on. And everything the Apostle Paul writes is so direct. It's so 
in your face. She shan't be called an adulteress because her husband's dead. I mean, how do you nuance that? Uh, she won't, you know, nobody will say she's shacking up because her husband is passed on. You know, even that, adulterous debt, you know? Think of all the euphemisms we have for debt, you know? Monty Python routine, you know? You know, bought the farm, you know? What, what are some of the others? Gone off to me, cease be. Join the choir invisible. <laughs> and we could keep going. Listen, the Apostle Paul lowers himself to speak directly. And he says, she is free, and she will not be called an adulteress if she's joined to another man. And what does this teach us? Well, this teaches us that we no longer have the law as our husband. We have died with Christ, and now we have risen to new life and we are married to Jesus. Okay. Okay. Now, it is true, the church is the bride of Christ, but you don't ever want to push an analogy to its bitter end. Let it play with you. Now, listen. The entire Reformed Church today denies what the Apostle Paul has just taught us. Because what the Reformed Church says is, we are dead to sin, and we are dead to the law. And now we live by grace. Now, does anybody have an objection to that being said? No. It's what's left out that's important. We are dead to the law, we are dead to the sin, to sin and now we live in grace. We live in Jesus Christ. In the waters of baptism, we have been crucified in Christ. And now we are risen to new, to new life. This is true. And now we live in grace. This is true. And I'm not going to trivialize it. But let me ask you a question. And this is from, the, from John Calvin. When a woman has her husband die, okay, what does she do? When a woman has her husband die, what does she do? If she's a certain kind of woman. Let's say a woman who was always fighting with her husband. What does she do? I remember working for an extremely wealthy blue blood on Boston's North Shore in Manchester-by-the-Sea. And she and her husband were down in the islands, in the Caribbean, and all of a sudden he had a massive coronary and died in the restaurant. It was a big deal. <clears throat> Michael Dukakis came to the house for the wake. And do you know what that wife did? When she got home, she walked in that house and she looked at us domestics, that's what I was, and she said, I am the head of the house now. 
Now let me ask you a question. Do you think that that woman remarried? Now if somebody asked her, if somebody asked a lot of widows why they don't remarry, what do you think they'd say? Well, there's something called beatification that happens as soon as a loved one dies. The loved ones that are still living turn the loved one that died into a saint. They canonize them. Have you ever noticed this? You know, I've lived through it with a couple of brothers, and, and, and you know, I really love my brothers, but it got to be a bit much, you know? My sister and I would joke about how my brother Joe, his national merit, went to Swarth, but he was... And so we made him an honorary Eagle Scout. And so we would explain to Mud and Dad that Joe had actually been an Eagle Scout also, and they'd get angry. My mother, he wasn't an Eagle Scout. Oh, he must have been. (laughs) You notice how widows, after their husbands die, often canonize him. They turn him, and then they do something more. They say that they can't wait to see their husband again in heaven. They couldn't stand him when he was on earth. I'm not kidding. I have some personal knowledge of this. I mean, they loved him, you know, in the way that you love things you can't stand, right? They'd fight with him all the time. But, oh, man, as soon as he dies, he's like a saint, and and they have communion with him every day. And they just live for the day when they'll be restored to him. Even though Jesus says in in heaven there will be neither marrying nor the giving of marriage. And so if you listen to them, they had a blissful marriage because they were married to a perfect man, and when they get to heaven, she'll be perfect too, and we're living in the interim in which she pines for the fjords. For this husband, right? And because we're Christians, we are more real than anybody else in this stupid world. We face our sin and other people's sin, and what we know is really going on there is what? That woman who will never remarry because she has had her one true love. Are you all with me? That woman will never go under another husband. Come on, don't be stupid. We all come out with these wonderful justifications for the things that we want to do. And so she turns into a romantic. She was a rebel and a shrew to her husband while he lived. But as soon as she's released from him, she doesn't have any other husband. Oh, no. Are you all with me? Is there anybody here that denies that this is a common occurrence in the life of man? Come on, you all with me? Come on, come on. You all with me? Come on, I need it. Come on, give it to me, give it to me, give it to me. All right, all right, okay. So listen to me. Why do we have trouble understanding that the Christian who dies to the husband of the law 
refuses to be under the authority of Jesus Christ. Do you see this? It's exactly the same. We found this intolerable. We say we come to Jesus, that we're born again by his spirit, that we have died to the law. We celebrate the grace, but we refuse to give him fruit. And what is the fruit? The fruit is that you will submit to your husband. That's the fruit that you will submit to your husband. Well, you don't know my husband. He's such a blankety blank, 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 blank. Uh, actually, I, I do know your husband. And he is a blankety blankety blank. And you think he is. You should come into my home. <laughs> That's my son-in-law laughing. Bad mistake this week. I decided to plant roses in the middle of the heat of the day with my wife. Do you think I was good company? No. No. So what's the moral? Find a, find a pastor who is good company in the heat of the day with his wife when they're planting roses? Find a husband who won't buy roses that need to be planted? That's Mary Lee's fantasy. I need to be over, but I want to impress on you the Apostle Paul for two chapters goes on and on and on about the fact that you and I are to produce fruit for God. And if we use our being freed from the law as our husband as justification to not give God the fruit that we were created as Christians to give him, we are the grossest of hypocrites You have died to yourself, and you now live to give fruit to your husband, Jesus Christ. And this is all these two chapters are saying over and over and over again. One last comment, and I'll be done. Do you notice, we'll come back to this text next week, the second half of it, but do you notice what it says So if her husband is living, she's joined to him, she shall be called. Therefore, my brethren, verse 4, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another. Think joined, joined, y'all with me, joined, joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Come on, people, think. The Apostle Paul done be talking to you. You were joined to another. Who were you joined to? Jesus Christ. In order that we might bear... Come on! You are joined to Christ. And the sexual meaning of this is right below the surface. So that you would produce fruit. A man is joined to his wife in love so that she will produce fruit. And so here we come along in all our, you know, early 21st century sophistication. And we take, we eviscerate the text of being under a man as what marriage is. And we eviscerate the text of fruitfulness. And and we're just so doggone stingy with the text of Scripture. 
And so we deny the beauty of fruitfulness in marriage. We deny submission in marriage. How can this text mean anything to an early 21st century Western citizen? We have cultivated our ability not to see authority in Scripture. We have cultivated our ability not to see fruitfulness anywhere. We are standing on grace. And grace has absolutely no content. Because the beginning of grace for the Christian is that he is in union with Christ and he produces fruit. Don't you ever think that you making love to your wife and being open to having children is not a religious act? Don't you ever think that it's not a confession of Christian faith? God did not not design the mystery of marriage to point to nothing. And if you don't want to have fruit by your husband, you don't want to have fruit with your wife, then you ask yourself, do you want to have fruit to your bridegroom, Jesus Christ? Or is your life a very stingy, prophylacted, sterile, Western, Christian, Protestant, Presbyterian home? (laughs) See, God actually is holistic. And God thinks that words that have meanings in one place that we should think about those words and the meaning someplace else, you know? God actually wants words to have significance. He wants them to be full-orbed. He wants life to have a cross-pollination between marriage and Christian faith. He says that this is a mystery. You remember in Ephesians, behold, this is a mystery, you know. The Roman Catholics weren't exactly stupid in saying marriage was a sacrament. Because sacramental means mystery. So don't you get all stingy with the marriage bed. Don't you get all rebellious with your husband and then think that you could appropriate Romans 6 and Romans 7. No, no, no. No, no, no. You're going to have to take it all together or reject it of a fabric? All right, should I be done? (laughs) You know. Okay, come on. Calvin says this. I'll prove it to you and I'll stop. Calvin actually says this. He says, on verse 4, he says, The apostle, however, goes farther and says that the bond of the law had been destroyed but not so that we may live according to our own will, like a widow who lives as she pleases while she is unmarried. We have now been bound to another husband. And he loves us. And he gave himself up for us. And so here's an idea. Let's be fruitful for him. Let's be fruitful. All right, let's come to the Lord's table.